Hello and welcome to More Than Miscellaneous, a miscellaneous news production here on Independent Radio, 91.3 WVKRFM Poughkeepsie. I am your host for the day, Dean Kapitsky, contributing editor at the Miscellaneous News. Today on the show, we're going to be speaking with two MISC writers, veterans of reporting, um, talking about the theme today is communications and communicating, I guess, from the school uh, regarding the CARES Act uh, loans that are distributed by the school. We're going to be talking to Jiatsu Nadu about that article that came out last week in the first edition of the paper of the semester. And then we'll be talking to Kai Spears about their investigation into uh, some unsung alum pretty far into the archives for this one. So we'll play you out, of course, with Father Koi with Dream Girl. Okay, so Kai, thank you so much for coming in today and talking about your story coming out tomorrow in the second edition of the So, your first year at Vassar, tell me about your beat and what you like covering here. Yeah, um, so I've mostly just done a couple features articles. Um, I really like this because I can sort of write about whatever I want. Um, I've done research, um, for example, for this article, done research into some lesser-known Vassar alums. I've done some sort of personal arts-related things relating to um, Bob Dylan did an article about Anthony Bourdain. Um, and Features is also pretty great because I've been able to do some um, interviews with students, one article about thrifting and one about dorm plants. Is there anything you really enjoy about covering a college campus? So Features is a great beat to kind of explore the quirkier side of Vassar News. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, I love talking to people. Um, I love sort of casual interviews that are kind of just like conversations. Um, that of course are turned into article content. Um, but yeah, just talking to people, researching weird niche little subjects, it's all, it's all super fun. Yeah, well speaking of weird niche little subjects, you wrote this week about unsung Vassar alum that aren't gonna be the high, that aren't gonna be <laughs> on the names of buildings and, and stuff like that. So tell me about this idea. How did it, how did it come across your mind? Yeah, so um, a couple months back, I wrote an article on Anthony Bourdain, sort of expanding the Blodgett Hall tribute. Um, for those who don't know, Bourdain went to Vassar for about two years before dropping out to pursue you know, his cooking career. Um, he was a big influence on my life. That's sort of why I wrote the article. Um, and after I was done, I was thinking, huh, what other like Vassar alum have stories worth sharing? And you know, we all kind of know some of the famous ones. Um, but I don't have a sort of personal connection to like Anne Hathaway, for example, as cool as her life story may be. It's also probably been told thousands of times. So I figured like, hmm, how can I find maybe some other cool Vassar alum that have stories that haven't been covered very much? And so I went to, you know, one of the greatest places on the internet, Wikipedia. <laughs> 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 and there's this super long um, Wikipedia article that has just links to every single um, or every single Vassar alum that has a Wikipedia page is on that page. 
And so most of them are like, you know, a couple sentences long. It's like, oh, blank blank went to Vassar and now is a businessman at blank or is a writer who did a little bit, right? But every <laughs> once in a while, I found some stories that were worth sharing, I guess you could say. So, you great. So Wikipedia, that's a, just an amazing find mm-hmm. that Wikipedia has this. It's truly one of the great inventions of the internet uh so what people did you find and did you you had three names in this story did you whittle them down yeah so i found a ton of names and i'm thinking i'm going to try to turn this article into a series um three was plenty enough to write a full article um and so i'm thinking i would do like three every couple weeks but the three people that i found um actually it's technically four but two of them sort of come in a duo um, the three people I found, I think, are from have very, very different stories. And so if each time I do this sort of series, I can cover three, maybe four, some kind of number like that, um, of people with very different stories. These three are particularly interesting, I think. I was really fascinated by this woman, Elizabeth Bentley, class of 1930. She was... Um, well, she wore a few different hats, quite literally, in her <laughs> career. So why don't you give us the backstory on her? Yeah, so Bentley was class of 1930. Um, she was very smart. She triple majored. I guess it was possible back then. English, French, and Italian. I know a guy who did. Really? Did do that, yeah. Oh, wow, okay. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's crazy. Um, and then she attended Columbia University for grad school. You know, I could definitely see that path for myself or some other students. Um, but then she went to Italy for study abroad. Um, keep in mind, this is Mussolini's Italy. This is Italy in the 30s, right? So she actually sort of becomes a proto-fascist. She joins like a youth fascist group while in Italy, um, but has an affair with her left-leaning professor who sort of convinces her to change her politics before going back to the United States. So this is a left-leaning professor who wants to... I mean, get with a fascist student. So, you know, love. Yeah, I guess. Transcends <laughs> political ideology. I guess. Or, I mean, her political ideology is pretty pretty flimsy. Because when she gets yeah. back to the U.S., she has such a political 180 that she actually joins the Communist Party of the United States, which is an independent party, but it's, it's quite um, closely tied to the, the USSR. Um, and so in 1935... She obtains a job at the Italian Library of Information in New York, which is basically like fascist Italy's propaganda bureau. Um, And she works as a spy reporting her work back to the Communist Party of the United States. Um, So she's she's reporting on Italian propaganda to the Soviets because they are at odds. Yep, that's where she starts. Um, But her espionage career, I guess you could say, definitely grows from there. She um, falls in love with, has a relationship with Jacob Golas, who's um, pretty high up in the precursor to the KGB, the NKVD. Um, and she, you know, is a very effective spy and sort of climbs the ranks. Um, five years after her first job, I guess, working for the USSR, she's making nearly $200,000 a year as a spy, which, you know, it's quite a lot. $200,000 in today's money. Um, so her partner, Golos, 
dies in 1943, um, and she suddenly finds herself um, with all of his contacts, all of his contacts, um, all of his like jobs and um, things are given to her, and she like very briefly finds herself in control of this um, intricate and expansive spy network on the East Coast. Um, by this point, the USSR has kind of tightened its grip on the Communist Party of the United States. It's no longer very much independent as it is like a branch of, not a branch per se of the USSR, but you know, they're in cahoots. And mm. she doesn't entirely like that. So some higher ups in the USSR are telling her to transfer control of all her contacts who keep in mind are American citizens sympathetic to communism. Right. And, and at this time, the US, this is in World War II. Yes, so the this USSR is now in World War II. And the United States are allies in mm -hmm. the fight against her former love fascism. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Allies, but, you know, allies with an asterisk. <laughs> um, Unlikely bedfellows. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. Um, so then in 1944, she finally concedes to her superior's demands, um, but this move sort of leaves her disillusioned with the Soviet Union. She has a tense meeting with her immediate superior, um, in which in which she threatens to turn him into the FBI, which is you know not the kind of thing you want to say to your superior who works for Moscow. Um, so realizing she's sort of in danger and sort of caught between a second poli massive political switch in her political ideology, um, she defects to the FBI on November seventh, nineteen forty-five. Um, J. Edgar Hoover, for those. Um, who know him probably scowling, um, but <laughs> J. Edgar Hoover himself ordered like the highest, strictest, the highest and most strict security measures be taken immediately to hide her identity. Um, and in a series of testimonies, she implicates over 150 people for spying for the Soviet Union. Um, 37 of those are federal employees for the United States government. So for all this, was she rewarded? Was she? Uh, did she get off? unscathed not i mean she got off unscathed um but to put that much work um into spying for the ussr and then to backstab um her i mean fellow americans yes americans sympathetic to the ussr um it's basically her second massive political 180 the first one from <laughs> fascism to communism and the second from communist sympathizer to fbi informant essentially yeah. So what does she do to then just become like the like overseer of a hedge fund? <laughs> that would be pretty funny actually. I there wasn't much information after that. It was mostly she sort of had to go into a little bit of hiding originally in fear that like the Soviets would retaliate. But you know, it's it's not once she's already implicated people, it's not really worth it to find and kill her. I think that's only like a, a spy movie thing. Um so then I think she lived the rest of her life pretty calmly with probably some pretty interesting stories to tell yeah. um but yeah did vassar ever is it enter her life again i don't think so um not as far as i know i feel like the action sort of ended with her implicating 150 people <laughs> <laughs> so i i didn't i didn't dive too far too much farther past that um i don't know how where else in the political spectrum could she go after that uh, Andrew Yang's party. There you go. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Fighting for universal basic income. <laughs> so switching it up in a little bit next, uh, you profiled two, I think 
alums that I'd actually heard of um, who are were on Broadway. Yes. Tell me about those people. Um, so Lily Cooper and Ethan Slater um, both graduated class of 2012. Um, and I both I think both were film majors. Um, you know, there's a lot of connotations for film majors at Vassar. You know, they know their French Impressionist film. They know their, they know their stuff. Um, they found work on Broadway, these two alum, um, specifically on the set of SpongeBob SquarePants, the Broadway musical. Um, they also both got really big roles. Slater was um, SpongeBob, and Cooper played Sandy, right? So that's two Vassar alums playing arguably number one and I guess number three most important character in Spongebob. That's that's up for debate, but yeah. Um, and this musical, like, as much as it sounds like it was a joke, Spongebob Squarepants, the Broadway musical, it was actually critically acclaimed. It won, it was nominated for 38 awards, 12, 12 of which were Tonys. And Slater, uh, the guy who played Spongebob, was actually nominated by the Tonys for best performance by an actor in a leading, in a leading role in a musical. Um, and they both received very explicit praise in articles for the Chicago Tribune and the New York Times, and I'm sure many other publications across the U.S. Um, so two Vassar alum, both same class, both working on Broadway, both on Sponge, SpongeBob SquarePants the Musical, and both doing really well is kind of impressive. Yeah, I would love to know what their take on the Vassar take on the SpongeBob character would be. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, okay. Successful Vassar alums. That's kind of interesting. But there was another, um, even, I don't even know how to describe this, uh, trailblazing, we could say, alum, even earlier back that you, that you found. Tell me about Alice Ramsey. Yeah, I think this was this was my favorite article or favorite person to research, um, partially because her story is in many ways so inspiring. Um, but um, Alice Hewler was class of 1905. Um, could not find what she majored in, but doesn't entirely matter. Um, and in 1908, her husband John Ramsey, who was also a senator at the time, um, bought her a new Maxwell runabout. For those who don't know, and I definitely did not know this. Maxwell was a car brand that ran from 1904 to 1925, and Runabout is like an old type of automobile that was super light, didn't have a windshield, didn't have a top, and didn't have any doors, and only had one row of seats. So it was essentially like a golf cart without a roof, so like even less than a golf cart. Um, she became slash already was an avid car enthusiast. She entered many competitions, um, most notably the American Automobiles Association, a Montauk Point endurance race in 1908, uh, in which she was one of two women to compete. Um, so definitely a pioneer, I guess, in that field. Um, she drew attention of Carl Kelsley, Kelsley um, a fellow racer who did publicity for the, manu for the um, Maxwell manufacturer, right? Um, so through this meeting, the company agreed to supply a 1909 car for Mrs. Ramsey. Um, the company sort of hoped they could set up a publicity stunt where it'd be like, hey, look, we know that um, it's not normal for women to drive at the time, but look, we have these very cool um, cars that we want to sell to women. So they, they picked her as sort of their marketing scheme. Um, 
So they gave her a free car to drive across the United States in a publicity stunt where she'd stop at many different cities and sort of, you know, show off the car, show that women can drive cars too. Um, so on June 9th, 1909, um, this 22-year-old housewife began a 3,800-mile journey from Manhattan, New York, to San Francisco, California, in, again, a slightly different car than the one she was originally gifted by her husband, but it was still, you know, a really old car, mostly decorated for um, aesthetic purposes, not for sort of off-roading and things. Um, so one comparison is that most, car most cars nowadays have between 100 and 300 horsepower. Hers had um, 30, so definitely not a not a beast on the road. Yeah. Um, she traveled with three other women, none of which could drive a car, so she was doing 100% of all the driving. Um, and boy, did this group have some tenacity. So of the 3,800 miles um, that they traveled, only 152 were paved. That's less than 0.04% of the journey. Yeah, this is, this is pre-Eisenhower infrastructure, highway system, no interstates. Yep, exactly, yep. I, th I think there was something about how she had to follow telephone wires to make sure she wasn't really driving into like the middle of nowhere. Oh yeah. There's also no navigation. They had, you know, scrappy maps, but if the roads aren't even paved, what are you going to map? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Um I'm I'm looking on Google Images and the pictures I highly recommend everyone check them out because they're every bit as fantastic as you would think they were. She's wearing this large leather hat with like a little baseball visor I guess to protect her from the sun on those harsh cross-country days uh, and the car is literally like a Model T looking um, yeah tractor yeah what do the wheels look like the wheels are just like thick mountain bike tires <laughs> yeah um, and she's got her ladies uh, rolling with her in the back they're they're rolling four deep on the way to the function of San Francisco wherever they're going. Um, it's fantastic. Yeah, definitely not a car I'd even want to drive on like a paved road, <laughs> let alone the desert or like the Rocky Mountains or something. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So over the course of the drive, Ramsey and her crew changed eleven tires. I don't even know how to change a tire. <laughs> I think most people don't really know how to change a tire. Um, they cleaned the spark plugs on more than one occasion. I don't even really know what the spark plugs do. Um, and they repaired a broken brake pedal, um, which, again, I have no idea how to do. And they had to sleep in the car when it was stuck in the mud multiple Whoa. times. Yeah. How they got the car out of the mud, I, I don't know. I think that's that would require reading of her. Seems like a pretty good book, actually. Veil, Duster, and Tire Iron. She wrote a book after the journey, sort of describing every single moment. It's quite long. I think it's like five or 600 pages. Um, but again, if you want more details, I'm sure you could read that book and get all of the details. Five or 600 pages. Yeah. Long journey, I guess. Yeah. Does she describe like every squirrel that they ran over? <laughs> I think they'd be going almost too slow to actually <laughs> run over a squirrel in a, in a car of that, of that type. It'd be a really, really slow squirrel. That's amazing. And what's more amazing is that she did like the the Vassar ideal twentieth century thing where she actually marries a, a wealthy, politically motivated man to mm -hmm. take care of her. Mm -hmm. And then she goes off and does this. She goes off and does way cooler things. <laughs> He's sitting in Congress. She's driving across the country. 
Yeah, I like reading journals about how hard it was to do this idea of, of basically Vassar wanted to like s- export their students to Yale and other Ivies and also try to import them to Poughkeepsie to mingle. And that really didn't work so well because no one wants to come to Poughkeepsie for a weekend in the winter. <laughs> as much as I love Poughkeepsie. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, wow. So any um, any wisdom that these unillustrious alum imparted? Anything that Vassar students now can take with them as we think about our future career plans? Man, that's a good question. Um, I mean, these stories are in some ways so wacky and so unique, so it's such eccentric people um, that I think they in many ways represent a large portion of the Vassar population. Mm. Um, I tried to draw a sort of like conclusion in my ending um, that could tie all these together. And honestly, there isn't much aside from just like people live really interesting, strange lives. And even if they aren't picked up by, even if they aren't super famous, um, even if they don't make a ton of money, um, people have really, really interesting life stories. And with a little digging, you can often find some of those really interesting life stories. And I'm sure that, I mean, it's going to sound maybe a little corny, but I'm sure that all of us post Vassar are going to create very interesting life stories. Um, Maybe one day we'll have a funny Wikipedia article that gets mm-hmm. visited. <laughs> Not that often, but still has some cool stuff on it. Um, so, yeah. Definitely a go. lot of cool alum stories. And a lot more to be made. There we go. If you were a history major, you would say, go to the source. Yes. <laughs> if, especially if the source is Wikipedia. Uh, but, Kai, thank you so much for coming in and talking about this. This is, this is really fun stuff. This is what student journalism is all about. Thank you for having yeah. me. Uh, we're going to play you out with Funky Town by Spud Cannon.
Morgan Brain Jobson, I do. Um, talking about the CARES grant um, developments this semester. Uh, it's been a story that Vassar students have, you know, it, it's impacted almost everyone in the country, but um, there's certain grants for students that have been in effect since 2020, and they're going under some changes, and Gatsuna reported on that this week. So thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Talking about this article. Thank you so much for writing, too. Um, so to set the table um, for this issue, what exactly um, is the CARES effect on Vassar students? Yeah, so Vassar last year had a lot more funding from the federal government. So because of that, they were able to give a lot more money to actually fewer students. Um, but this time around, in the fall semester, um, the grants were also bigger, amount of 1200 and 1800 um, The second time around, though, in January, students received grants uh, via email, and everybody, um, I think it was like 821 or so, um, received the same amount of 289 So it's a lot less. Mm. Um, and so people weren't really understanding why that, that was the case. People thought it would be the same amount as last year. Um, and so just because of that confusion, um, I wanted to kind of write the story and kind of piece together what was happening. So the original sum was significantly higher. How were students able to apply for that? Um, and what was the structure of the, of the grants? Yeah, so the first time around, there was no application. It was just for students who were like FAFSA eligible and like, you know, obviously priority was given to like those who are most in need. The second time around is when the application happened, which also was last year. And so that was basically done to make sure that all students, because, you know, COVID <laughs> really impacts everybody in so many different ways. Um, and so everybody was able to apply for some money. But then, you know, some people voiced concerns about we don't really need this. <laughs> so um, there was an opt out option, which left the pool of funds for other students. Gotcha. And so these are federally distributed funds. How much control does Vassar have over the amount of money they have and the amount of money they can uh, dispense to students? So the specific like grant that Vassar receives, they don't have any control over that. They just kind of apply, mm. my understanding of that is. Um, and then the grant distribution process also, those um, kind of guidelines are set by the federal government, which have been constantly changing, which is reflective in the differing amount of students who have received grants and the actual amount of grant, or not the amount, the, the value of them. Um, and so specifically, like how they wrote the application, they had control over that, but the amounts and things wasn't really in their control. So this year, the federal grant was reduced, correct? Yes. All right. Was is that just because of the changing guidelines of the, the state of the pandemic? I assume so. Um, just because with like the American Rescue Plan, it's mm. not the first thing; it's like the third, um, mm. of these grants. So. Gotcha. And so students were willingly opting out of these grants. Yes. Right. Students who has also received these grants um previously. Gotcha. And so. Vassar did some financial rigging um, to do what exactly? To ensure that people could get grants, at least a smaller amount? 
Yeah, um, and Vassar also supplemented the federal grants um, that, like, so there's, like, two sections that the federal um, money goes towards. One is for, like, student aid, which are those grants, and then the second part of that is, like, institutional. So Vassar used some amount of the institutional funds to go towards um, those student grants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you reported that the college redistributed $39,900 of institutional funds uh towards the grants so what is an institutional fund were you able to gather that from your reporting yeah it was the amount of like i think around five million dollars um and it was given at like a similar time frame um but they're used for things that like just because of covid and the impact on so there's like specific categories Mm -hmm. like i don't remember off the top of my head um but just related to the covid pandemic and um like fixing that so um just maintaining upkeep but um the college had more um ability to do what they wanted with those funds versus the student aid they just had to directly give those out gotcha and there were some complaints from students that you talked to that they felt like even though the college did tap into these institutional funds this sort of slush fund that they could have done more because the value of the school's endowment is significantly what the figure suggests exactly um it's one the amount of the grant money they received which was far less but two and i think the point of this is the communication um the college said that they like communicated readily um but the students had a very different understanding um and i don't know whose fault that is but the fact remains that a lot of students were left under this impression and had to go through a lot of like financial struggles because of that what sort of financial struggles were they going through? Um, well, some of them, um, one student, their one of their parents lost their jobs, and so it was managing that and also sending money back home to their family, and so they were kind of relying on this grant to help them through the semester, you know, things like textbooks and stuff like that. Um, another student last year was able to access mental health support, um, and this time around, just because Vassar doesn't offer a more long-term um, support, um, it's harder for them now. Right. So you reached out to a Vassar administrator about where the communication sort of went right and went wrong. Who did you speak to? Um, I spoke to Dean Wendy, and then I spoke to the director of grants, Gary. And what is Dean Wendy's position? Um, Dean Wendy, well, both of them sent like a joint email, so I don't really know to differentiate both of them. But the email collectively said that both of them believed that they maintained communication with the students. I don't want to quote them directly. It's in the um, article. But, yeah, when I asked, like, what changes are being made, they just kind of reaffirmed that they were maintaining that communication with students. Mm. Did they understand that there was some miscommunication? I mean, emails get lost and unread. Were they understanding of the situation, of the students' frustrations? Um, I don't entirely know, especially because the emails that were sent out to concerns of students were all the same. Mm-hmm. So they didn't take, um, like, a specific approach to each. But I don't think I can make, like, a generalization. But th- that's what happened, at least. Good journalism. Thanks. Um, was there anything in your reporting that you did that didn't make the cutting room floor here? There's a lot of great information about how exactly these funds were distributed. Um, I guess 
the student side of it, um, another factor um, is that Workday doesn't allow students to get um, their earnings for like the first few weeks, which is when students need it most. Mm. So that's just another layer that exacerbates this problem. But Why is that? Um, Why the students need them the most in the first few weeks because of tuition payments? Yeah, tuition payments, but also just like daily like necessities. You know, when you come back to campus, you buy like your products from the store, you go out. Um, so it's just daily living things. Mm. Is there uh, future grants that the college is going to distribute, or is it too early to say because things are changing? So the American Rescue Plan, all of those funds have been allocated, so there's like nothing left. Mm. So if there's grants, it'll be through like another federal thing. Um, so there's nothing been confirmed yet. And that's kind of all on hold while Congress sorts through the American Rescue Plan yeah. and Build Back Better and those those sort of things. Um, did students feel com comforted by the messaging from the deans that you talked to? Have you got any feedback on the story? Um, yeah, some students were like appreciative that this was being cleared, but it's more like I feel like the CARES Act is just one thing of like a greater problem of just addressing and acknowledging low-income students you mm. know uh, like the laundry was increased in price so I don't think like this is like an isolated incident mm. um, and I don't know how to make sense of this entire issue um, but it's definitely one thing that you can turn to to be like this is having a really uh, poor impact mm. on certain students yeah, and we've had reporting last semester talking about how work-study jobs weren't being posted and there was real miscommunication from the college about when those jobs could be applied for, what was available, when people could start earning money that was really messing up people's uh, beginning of the semester and, and their understanding of how they could be getting their um, their work-study allocation for financial aid. So mm -hmm. this, is, this is an issue that the school is working through. Um, as it also ramps up the minimum wage for student workers mm -hmm. on campus. So this is really great reporting. Um, I think we'll be seeing more of, of this as the pandemic goes on, but thank you for coming in and talking about it thus far. Thank you for having me. Sure. Um, we'll play you out, of course, with Dream Girl and then return with some messages.
week. You know, really just fascinating pieces and what makes student reporting so valuable. I can go on and on. But thank you to them. Thank you to Father Coy, as always, for our theme music. Coming back next week, we'll be on again Wednesday, 11 a.m. Of course, you can check out our podcast